Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific series. As in Voice of Fintech podcast so far, here you will hear inspirational stories of entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, investors, ecosystem hub leaders from or close to the world of fintech. Asia Pacific series will be hosted by amazing hosts based in the region, speaking to the leaders from Asia Pacific. Here is another one hosted by Angela. Hi, I'm Angela, CEO of Natarum, and today I'm hosting the Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific podcast. Today we have with us Varun Mattel, Ernst Young's global emerging markets fintech leader, as well as an investor, advisor, founder, and author. Varun, there are not too many titles that you don't have. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to everyone. Excellent. So, Varun, you spent some time in startups, in big corporate, and now consulting. Tell us a bit about how you got here. The background of uh, it has been uh, not doing actually any planning, uh, just going with the flow. So a lot of times that's what uh, actually makes makes sense. I was a computer science engineer by training, was happily working as a computer science guy, decided to go into business school. And after that, uh, couldn't find any other job except for telco because my previous uh, job before MBA was in telecom sector to make smart cards, credit cards. So joined uh, one of those companies, uh, was doing that, and it was 2012. App stores were ramping up, people were starting to buy content, and uh, we started to do payments on phone bills. And that's how I got into payments. And while I was doing that, uh, one of the app stores, and we were managing all the app stores for the broader Singtel group, um, Samsung was looking to expand their content, and Samsung was looking from a perspective of uh, how do we have people more engaged in the ecosystem? How do we have more Samsung apps, Samsung App Store versus the Google App Store? So they asked, do you want to help us do this? So I jumped on the other side from the payments, Singtel side, I moved to the Samsung side of the things to help them work across telcos, across payment options. I was doing that, we scaled it, multiple apps across the region, loads of telcos, wallets. And then uh, to one of the friends, I came across an opportunity where uh, the PayPal for Southeast Asia was being built, uh, which was uh, backed by Lazada. And they were looking for somebody to just come in from zero and start the marketing from scratch. Uh, it was the first marketing employee to set up the Facebook pages, Twitter pages from scratch. We are doing that, and we didn't have a sales team at that time. So we just said, can I do that? Said, okay, start. Uh, started to do sales. and. We started, suddenly started to have a lot more merchants. Small startup, we didn't have the rest of the product built in. They said, okay, the product is not ready. We are an engineer, so maybe you want to help build the product side of the thing. Yeah, makes sense. Let's do that. We started to build the product side of the things. And then the operations were not ready because we had not scaled up in terms of the reconciliation, the KYCs of the merchants. So we discussed with the team and everything. I'm like, okay, I will give up my marketing and sales portfolio. And I'll go and run the operations uh, and to scale this because now you have the product, you're having customers in-house, but you need to serve them. Started to do that. And during that time, Ant Financial came in with an acquisition proposition and stuff. Uh, so during that time, uh, also engaged with the EY because got, I was awarded EY Accelerating Entrepreneur of the Year while working on the startup. And so which is why I like, came into a lot of touch with the ecosystem. 
startup ecosystem at that point. Also started Singapore's fintech association from scratch during the time I was doing the startup. And then we were the first company in Southeast Asia to be acquired 100% by Ant Financial. Went to Hangzhou, went through the process. Then I was like, okay, what's next? Then I, and like I have a lot of friends in Uganda, like you've done, you've done a telco, you've done a consumer electronics, you've done e-commerce, you've done payments. You have not done professional services. Uh, and you've not worked with like the traditional banks and insurers. So do you want to come to this side? 29. Uh, how bad was the worst it can go? It's a large company, it will not crash tomorrow. Okay, let's try. Uh, that's how I ended up at EY. So, and then EY has been like uh, a different kind of journey, learning different side of things. So that's why it's, it was never uh, a structured thing. It's as Steve Jobs says, uh, once you look at hindsight, you connect the dots and you have it, but you don't have like a straight line at the day one. It's at the, at now I can connect all these dots, but it was not by design. Interesting. So it sounds a little bit like some good luck, some good timing, but then a lot of hard work in the middle there. So quite the journey. Um, what I'd like to talk a little bit about your role now um, in emerging markets. And it's estimated that around 6 billion people or 85% of the world population lives in an emerging market country. And your role at EY obviously focuses on emerging markets, which means you are a very busy man. So I'd love to hear how you define an emerging market and how you've seen this concept change over time. The way I look at emerging markets is uh, countries or markets which are leapfrogging at least one generation of offerings. So whether they jumped from uh, nothing to a smartphone, whether they jumped from 2G to 4G, or whether they jumped having a physical brand, physical checkbook, physical passbook to squirt a mobile-based financial services offering. So uh, all those players uh, areas where they have leapfrogged a generation of offerings is, is what I see as like the unifying trend of emerging markets all over the world. And broadly, we see a lot of common themes. The government's trying to build up uh, the underlying infra, whether it's payment rails, whether it's identity rails, a lot of hunger in the population who actually want to solve problems. Uh, financial institutions have different kind of challenges. There's young populations, so their needs and aspirations are very unique. For example, uh, their view is that if my and your Netflix is same, if my and your Apple phone is same, my and your Spotify is same, why should my bank be different than yours? Just because you have a bit more money doesn't mean I should have a different experience. If the rest of our lives are equal, why should financial services be not equal? So that kind of mindset is something which which unifies the emerging markets. And my job is to bring these solutions, look at what solutions we can pick from one market and take to other markets. What uh, can be the learnings and, lever and leverage those learnings across the, across the spectrum. So that, that theme of equality is really interesting, I guess, particularly in the world that we find ourselves in now. So that's one of the key themes as well as, as you said, leapfrogging. What are some of the other key themes that you see in the biggest fintech trends that you see emerging? One is democratization of access. So one thing which used to be unique was access was because it was expensive to build stuff. What has happened is a lot of fintech players have looked at how they can build stuff on existing financial institutions' rails. And now everybody has literal access to it, so whether it was private markets, whether it was bonds, whether it was investing. So if you look at US now, almost everybody can be, can, can buy, buy yourself stocks at a fairly reasonable pricing from that perspective. The, because the technology became cheap enough for most people, 
thanks to cloud and digital KYC AI solutions. Uh, now everybody, so just think of it this way. 2000, everybody could make a website. 2010, everybody could make a mobile app. 2020, everybody can make a financial services product. Of course, you need licensing, but you can use other people's licenses to build on it. That for me is the, is the main change. Really interesting. So a quality of access and a quality of experience are two really interesting themes to sort of touch on. When, how do you keep your finger on the pulse? I mean, you must come across so much content from a daily basis. What are the sort of key themes or the key um, areas that you turn to to stay informed in this particular area? A uh, couple of things. I am voracious reader. So I'm still old school, uh, river of news, RSS reader format kind of person. So I still have a massive RSS feed of at least 200 publications which come through my desk every day. Uh, I work with the communities, grassroots communities in most of these markets. So having those, I would say, sessions or engagement points monthly where they know your interest areas and you know your interest areas, that is something which helps you stay in the loop and you are plugged in. Excellent. I think we can all sort of attest to the value of our network given um, our current work from home status in a lot of different locations. So I'd love to talk a bit more about your role at EY. So you help a lot of companies, you do a lot of consulting for large companies. And I guess there's two schools of thought around technology for the companies. And that is, do they buy it or do they build it themselves? Uh, how do you kind of help them make this decision? And how have you seen a change in thinking around this concept over the last few years? I have a very, very simple way to look at it. Are you going to do something which will, which will be differentiated? If you are going to build something which is going to be differentiated, then there is, I would say, there is a case to build it. Then there is a case to build it. Uh, if what you're going to build is still going to be something equivalent to what's existing in the market, then then it's just worth outsourcing or buying or renting from that person. So, so my model of looking at is, are you in a position to actually create something which will differentiate your solution? The, the, some people who build it for the sake of building. That, oh, we need to have control over these parts of the valley. And um, I mean, like, uh, no matter what you do with the way things are moving, there will be parts of your value chain which will be not under your control. Uh, whether it's your cloud offering, whether it's the actual AI solutions, because you will use APIs from somebody below. So the way I look at it, are you able to create something that creates a unique value for your end solution or product? If you can do that, then it's worth building. Then else, outsource it. And when you outsource it, then it's a question of whether you rent or buy. That's a pure commercial call and pricing and reliability issue from that perspective. Uh, but that's how I look at it. Okay, interesting. So have you sort of seen um, corporates trying to build their own software more readily? Or are they moving to more of an acquisition model? What, what kind of trends are you seeing in the market around that? I haven't seen a lot more acquisition because they understand that uh, acquiring it, they can acquire, but the premise is running it, maintaining it is not the same. Uh, it comes with its own challenges. I've seen a lot of uh, scenario where there is a, I would say, increasing comfort with consuming it as a service. Okay. It's good to hear that the corporates are heeding your advice in that in that regard then. See, the premise is this. They, they see it in the rest of their, because a lot of things we have to look at is this, right? What we are seeing is there's a, Always ping pong between consumerization and enterprise and becoming things becoming enterprised or things becoming consumerized. I'll give you reference examples. 
people got smartphones for their personal lives first and then the corporates adopted corporates gave you email access on your on your phones later than this versus the emails companies picked up some of those emails uh, services started to happen at corporate first and then it came to personal or the computers were more available in offices first before they became uh, consumerized for homes you see technologies and experiences move from either of the sides that that attitude of accepting that you will rent this service or you will have a subscription model is because the decision makers also see their daily life that they are doing okay interesting and that is something started to influence because they they do it on a daily basis in their own lives in their personal lives and their personal needs family needs. interesting okay so i guess we often talk about um giving startups some advice on how they can best engage with corporates but what's some advice that you'd give to corporates on how better to engage with startups seeing as they are often the ones that are building this um paradigm shifting technology a lot of the time they have to define what's the end goal are they are they exploring or are they actually looking to pull the trigger because a lot of times uh, the premises they have to make an internal case and there is an cost of failure and the cost of failure will be the person who's pushing for that case so which is why uh, ensuring that you have so again from startup side it may look like why there is a committee for everything from a stakeholder side is that nobody gets a medal for working with that startup or buying that solution so the the risk reward ratio unfortunately in corporate is not in favor of taking the gold except if you are in the innovation side of the division in a large corporate then it's different but otherwise the risk reward ratio is not in the favor of the brave so which is why they have to put those what they can do is they can be upfront and transparent with the startup so that's what we are telling them that guys just because uh you think that it will move in 6 months or move in 3 months we've seen it before it will take 9 to 12 months So let's let's have expectations aligned on both sides that it's likely going to cost this much time, and uh, let's let's see what we can do and build from there. So that's that's those kind of open conversation and accepting the realizations is what's important. I think that's that's really interesting because I think a lot of the time startups think that they do have the best solution, so it should be a no brainer for a lot of these corporates to sort of integrate that solution. And one part on that is see. Startups need to understand. Corporates do not buy the best solution, and globally, the best solution never won. The best solution doesn't win. They, they, the, the a corporate is not owned by an individual per se. There is an institution behind it, and it would be the solution which is probably the easiest to integrate, which may not be the best. but that has less dependencies and that shakes up less rest less things in the system how many touch points you do how many how much tech bandwidth and tech resources you need from the existing it infra uh, so there is a solution that maybe let's say 20% less efficient than you but that is three man months three or three women months less effort on it integration with versus you that's those are the kind of configuration so it's the quality is I haven't seen quality to be the only decision maker, and most cases it's not the single largest contributor either. It's one of the key contributor, but it is not the largest contributor. Really interesting. Okay, so when a startup comes in to pitch into the boardroom, I guess the integration is one of the discussions that you have once the startup leaves. What are some other factors that you and the corporates will talk about in terms of what they want to see from the startups that you often find missing from their pitches? How stable? How stable is the company? I'll give you a real, real example. 
I was working with a bank, uh, and this company comes with a very good CRM solution and everything. And the bank uh, trusts me from that perspective. So they asked me, like, you sit here. We have almost selected them to go live with us, but I just want you to have a look at this. So I just asked a very simple question with the founder. Like, you are competing with the big boys, and uh, you've won the functionality and all of that. Where do you see the company in three to five years from now? What's the end goal? He says, oh, we'll scale this and this and that. And then we aim at exiting it to company ABC. I'm like, you realize that you just beat company ABC in the evaluation and everything. So, and you acknowledge that this thing will take 12 to 18 months to go live because it's a CRM. So it takes tough to migrate and everything. So by the time we migrate, stabilize, and we've used it for like three years roughly, you will sell yourself to one of these big three guys. And then we will have to deal with those guys. And then your product or platform development or servicing is not the core priority. Um, explain me, why should I pick this if if I'm going to deal with those guys in four years anyways? Then I might as well just bite the bullet and take it now. So that's that's the, that's a, that's a real kind of conversation. Interesting. About building that level of trust, I think, between startups and, and corporates and transparency, as you mentioned before. Varun, you're a, you're a very vocal advocate for the public and private collaborations. Now, this is sort of a concept we see a lot of here in Singapore. Tell us a bit about why you think this is so important, particularly in Singapore, but also in the other regions that you work in. Singapore is slightly unique from that perspective because it's a very small domestic market. So, which is why it is not in the best of the commercial interest for the private companies to spend money to build a lot of that infra. So, think of it, if you build the same infra in, let's say, Malaysia or Indonesia, that's 20 million or 300 million people market. Singapore is 5 million only. So you cannot amortize it, which is why the government has to step in to build a lot of those building blocks and infra. And because, again, it's a small, so it's easier, but then government takes a leap on a lot of those things. Wherein the government it says, this is what we will build, and then now you can build all this stuff on top of it. So it's a, not the purest form of capitalism. It's not the purest form of uh, planned socialist development. It's what we call it. So I'm actually, I have a book coming out in December which describes this. We call it the Singanomics phenomena. So it's a Singanomics phenomena where there is a gentle nudge from the government while the private market has all the competition and levers to play. A lot of other countries are looking at similar models. In India, for example, they built the payment in front rails because they wanted financial inclusion. That was not possible if only the private players or only some banks would do it. So when the social goals are bigger or they're more critical than, than can be served by just the private sector, then the public sector has to come in. And which is why payments or an identity are two areas where across the markets, especially whether it's Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, they have built those uh, public utilities because it's right to push it because they want the transactions to become digital. They want visibility on it because that's important for one, defining where government spends money and assets and resources on. Second, for tax collection. Third, for ensuring people, once it's visible, then you can get them credit much easier. Which is why that public order of investing, and again, because most of these markets were not developed, they did not have a lot of legacy infra. So we see this very unique phenomenon law of Asian emerging markets where that infra is being built for the long term. And the governments are actually driving it because they need it for the rest of the market. Rest of the economy to grow, rest of the society to grow, they need to build that. And private sector alone can't do it. 
Interesting. So also, you were one of the founding members of the Singapore Fintech Association. And I think amongst, it's definitely one of the most active and successful associations. Tell us a bit about the early days. It all started in a WhatsApp group I run where the regulator and a lot of industry people are there. Uh, It's a private offline community for fintech people to talk in Singapore. And the discussion was that we had like five, six groups all representing fintechs and there was not like a single umbrella and I asked MAS that we should have one common uh, platform where it's easier. They said, okay. And that's a very Singaporean model. It's a good idea. Go, set it up. So then we stitched together a consortium like we pulled up uh, Rob Finlay who was running Next Money. We pulled uh, Garben who was running fintech consortium. We pulled Adrian Fisher so because I was quite scared that we don't need to should not break any law. We got Adrian Fisher from Links later. Uh, Subhajit, who was a CFA to, to be the treasurer, Anson, who was the president of the Blockchain Association, Anna, who was uh, running New Savvy, which was like a women financial literacy platform in Singapore. So we stitched together a consortium of such players to set up like a first committee. And then we put actually some very long-term impacting clauses in the constitution, which was one of the first ever done globally. He said at least five of the 11 council seats must be reserved for startups. Banks and insurers cannot have more than two out of 11 seats. They can't contest. So we put those clauses so that the voice of the smaller companies are never drowned out. And uh, I was running a startup at that time myself. So putting those kind of clauses, putting term limits. If you see globally, most associations don't have term limits. We are one of the first to put term limits that nobody can have more than two terms, no matter who you are, no matter how awesome you are. After two terms, you have to, you can never contest again. It's not like you take a break and then you come back. It's just, it's over. You have to get, leave the place for next generation to take place. So putting that level of long-term thinking in corporate governance was, was very crucial because if you don't have the strong foundations, you cannot build something long-term. And uh, over, over a period of time, we built a lot of cross-border relationships. And I built the first term. I built all the international relations. We had like more than 50 MOUs all over the world to stitch it. We worked very closely. We started to get like the grants from MAS to support some of the community initiatives. So it was more of like building the foundations for uh, this to be built. And which is why the, the book I mentioned will be called Singapore, the FinTech Nation. That actually has like full chapters on like the whole story of how all of this was being built from scratch, the stuff which we faced, what worked for the first two years we had no funding. It was bootstrap startup and with all volunteers, no staff. So so it was a fun journey. Really fun game. Well, I think on behalf of all the startups, we really appreciate the hard work you put in because we're certainly reaping the rewards um, further on down the line. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, there you have it, everyone. Varun Mattel from EY's Global Emerging Markets FinTech team and a passionate advocate for the ecosystem overall. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening to Voice of FinTech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of FinTech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.